welcome all of you to the meeting whereby we are discussing the book uh, Billionaire Raj by James Crabtree. Um, but why we are reading this particular book? So the Billionaire Raj um, is a captivating journey through the world of wealth, through the world of ambition and the thing which connects the, the two which is basically power so wealth ambition and power it's a it's basically a narration which goes through the bustling streets of mumbai to the private sanctuaries of the world's elite we go uh, through james and through this book uh, we go to their um, uh, you know weddings we go to their homes their offices you know see and i know i think one of the things which i really liked about the book and and james writing is basically the detail through which he has explained um the setting in in a meeting room whereby he's, he's having this conversation uh, with the billionaire you know how intricately he has described that particular room and i think that that's fascinating to me personally um the con like i said um, in my uh, notes to james also the other day that you know definitely the thumbs up on the content of the book but also on a on a very very good writing i i read like more than like close to 30 books uh, uh, um, a year and it's very hard to come across a good writing. Uh, anyone can write uh, a, a book uh, these days, especially with the chat GPT and, and whatnot is available there with ghostwriters and, and whatnot, but to, to write a, a good book is something which is very, very special. So if you have not already bought this book, please go ahead and, and get a copy of Billionaire Raj. And once you have read it, um, you know, post your uh, reviews on Goodreads, uh, on Amazon or write to James, uh, you know, spread the good world right so that we are pushing james ahead uh, to to write a second book also right um but now coming back to the the topic of the book like the billionaire raj why we are reading billionaire raj the, the book essentially captures one of the biggest uh, nations in asia which is uh, india and uh, india is one of the world's largest democracy with over a billion people eligible for vote uh, eligible to to vote and let me read something directly from the book which ca which captured my attention really from the beginning and it went through uh, through the through the last chapters the book is basically divided into three sections um, 12 uh, chapters in total um, i mean if if you take a book to the to the bed you can read one chapter every uh, every every night and you know it it, it develops uh, over a period of time and i think it's it's very well written so you will you will probably um, not doze through uh, one chapter so let me read directly from the book and and that will just tell you that why you should read this book and why you should uh, read about anything which is which is concerning to india so directly from the book and, and James writing, the Indian subcontinent has been the planet's largest economy for the most of the last mm -hmm. two millennials. Uh, three centuries of colonial rule ruined that legacy as the East India Company suppressed and plundered Southern Asia. In the late 17th century, when the British controlled just a handful of coastal cities, India's Mughal Empire presided close to a quarter of the global GDP, a quarter of the global GDP, that figure stood at mere 4% when the British troops left. At the When the British troops left, Indian economy was just left to mere 4% of the global GDP. Now, you know how how it shifts from from that point in time which was close to 1947 to what it was at the time of when james was writing this particular book was india now trades more goods and services as proportionate of their gdp than the larger asian neighbor and far more than america the value of the trade has rocketed just from just 17% of the gdp when it attracted economic reforms of 1991 to around 60% today now it talks about a very important point in Indian economic and prosperity journey, which is 1991. And there is um, a, a point in history whereby India basically had to sell their gold. And James, the, the book is so well researched that James even tells you that when those trucks were moving from one place to another and, and when they were going to the airport, what was happening, who wrote the articles about when the first batch went outside. So I think it, it's fantastically written. 
but i will not keep you uh, much awaiting uh, you know uh, between yours and and james thoughts uh, so uh, you know james is is someone so let me introduce the author of the book who is james is someone um, i i believe he doesn't need an introduction but i, I given given the chair of being a host so i have to uh, james have spent uh, close <laughs> to 5 year in india as the mumbai bureau chief of financial times he has been the associate professor of practice at lee kuan yew school of policy in singapore recently he was also the executive director of iiss international institute of strategic studies if i pronounced it correctly and he has written for numerous publications and newspapers including wired financial times foreign policy economist other uh, among other publications so without any further ado i really like to welcome james for today's uh, book club meeting welcome james it's yeah. funny it was funny listening to that because i'd totally forgotten about that story about the gold um yeah. so th this was a story back in uh in in the sort of the crisis that led to india opening up and i i, I remember thinking gosh it would be interesting to know sort of how so india had to sell off or had, it had to send some of its gold from uh, the banks of the the vaults of the central bank um, right. had to send it to switzerland yes and yes yeah, so <laughs> I, I i remember thinking it'd be really interesting to find out sort of like what happened to that gold where did it go and it was very difficult to find out i had to go and kind of dig around and ask people at the central bank and then to try and work out like literally how you got it there what you know was it taken by gold is heavy so can you yes. take it by trucks or cars anyway yeah. let me just say a few i think you wanted me to say a few things about the the book and i'll try and keep this pretty brief and then we can open up for questions um yeah so that the the you know the, the base so i moved to india in 2011 so it's quite a long time ago now so 12 years ago um and i worked as a journalist so i spent my time you know interviewing indian business people foreigners who are investing in india but one of the things that I was sort of endlessly fascinated by was India's tycoon class. Um, if you grow up in um, the United Kingdom or I don't know, try to look at the names here on the, and we have one guest from Vietnam, but um, you know, if you grow up in Europe or North America, I mean, I guess you could say you have tycoons, maybe the tech tycoons, Elon Musk sort of has quite a tycoony feel to him, maybe Richard Branson, if you were being charitable. Um, but the, the, the Western economies are not, you know, same with Japan or Republic of Korea, are not so dominated by tycoons and conglomerates as as what as as, as what they once were. And so the idea of finding out, you know, who these tycoons were, these enormously powerful capitalists, you know, what were they like? What made them tick? They all had these family-owned businesses in which it was, you know, brothers and brothers mm -hmm. and sisters and fathers and sons. And so I, be, I became interested in that. And so the first third of the book profiles three of the, the big tycoons, Mukesh Ambani, who um, I think is now back to being India's richest man, Vijay Malia, who's a very colorful um, airline yeah. entrepreneur, amongst other things, and then Gautam Adani. Interestingly, Gautam Adani is now the most high profile of the Indian tycoons at the time. I had to fight a rearguard battle to have him included in the book. Um, because people didn't think he was all that interesting. And I remember thinking, you know, we've got to have him in there. So if you want to read the, the third chapter is, I think, probably the Correct. most comprehensive um, account of the, the, uh, the, the at least the early years of Gotamadani's rise. Um, so so that, that, that was the sort of primary interest. And then out of that, I as I sort of began to follow the rankings of Indian billionaires yeah. and how much money they had, um, the second thing was a, an interest in wealth inequality. So it became right. kind of clear that something interesting was going on in India because you went from a situation in which there were no billionaires uh, in the period when the gold was being sold in the early 90s yeah. to one in which India had more billionaires than by, by number anyway, and, and by I think also by value than any other country apart from the United States and China. At some point, it overtook Russia in terms of billionaire wealth. And so that, that, that was interesting. I mean, India was always an unequal country, but it, it had got a lot more unequal in this period of opening up. And so I thought that that was interesting. That kind of captured my my interest, and and yeah. so I sort of charted, you know, what we should think about that. Is it a problem? Um, but it's a topic that still I think 
divide particularly audiences like this one, which I am going to guess is mostly drawn from finance, that, that um, people are kind of quite comfortable with rising levels of wealth inequality, so long as it means that the average person or those at the bottom are also doing well, which is true in India, that you know everyone is pretty much doing better than their parents were. But I tried to make the argument that there are good reasons to be worried about uh, higher wealth inequality. As far as I can see, um, that's something that the book got right. I haven't seen any evidence that India is growing any more uh, equal. Um, and the risk for India is it ends up like Brazil or um, one of the Latin, South Africa, one of the Latin American countries that just has um, a level of inequality that is so enormous that it, it's almost impossible to reduce uh, even when you get a little bit richer. And then the third thing that was interesting to me was crony capitalism, the, the yeah. you know, Corruption, um, you know, corruption exists in all countries, even, even dare we say here in Singapore, where I think um, a good number of you will be joining us from. Um, but clearly there was a lot of corruption in India. I arrived <clears throat> just at the tail end of the last government, which fell apart in a raft of enormous corruption scandals. And Modi came in claiming that he would clean house. I mean, to some degree he did because that the really um, eye-opening um, scandals that dominated the previous government dropped away. But don't think anybody thinks that that sort of corruption levels have really declined all that much, particularly if you look at things like political party funding, which is still um, Indian political parties are still funded largely under the table by by the business class. And I suppose I was I was just fascinated in how did this how did crony capitalism happen? Like sort of how did it work? Were we yeah. talking about was it favors? Was it literally suitcases full of money? And I, I suppose I, I I became interested in why corruption happened in the first place. I mean, one of the things that I think is optimistic from India's point of view is that often I found people in, in India itself who sort of felt that corruption was kind of a national failing, as if somehow Indians were more corrupt than other people. And I, as I look back at the literature on this, it, you know, it became pretty clear that almost all countries go through phases in their early industrial development in which there are very high levels of corruption. It was true for the United Kingdom in the early 19th century, and it was true for the United States in the later 19th century. It was true for Japan, Korea, you know, all Asian countries have gone through this phase. And then, you know, gradually, um, as they develop, they tend to become, you know, in institutionally uh, uh, more uh, developed um, and corruption, hopefully, begins to drop away. And so the, the, the sort of one of the central metaphors of the book, the title is The Billionaire Raj, um, a journey through India's new gilded age. And so I drew this comparison between India um, today and the, the gilded age in America, the period after the, the, the Civil War, um, where you had you know two or three, three or four decades of enormous rapid growth, infrastructure creation, urbanization, the development of, of a kind of certain type of political structure. Uh, yeah. and, and I felt that that was a kind of useful comparison. It certainly worked well with American readers. I don't know quite how much people in India got out of it. So I suppose two things I think I got right and wrong. Um, I mean, I think the trends for inequality and corruption I got right. Um, I've seen no sign that, that India's level of inequality is declining. It's probably risen um, uh, since the book was written. And certainly the the trend towards the uh, consolidation of power of the, the tycoons that seems to have continued. I mean, certainly uh, Ambani and Adani have got enormously richer, um, both of them because of their proximity to the government in different ways. Um, and again, that doesn't seem to be slowing. I suppose one thing I think I got wrong was I completely underestimated, as a lot of people did, the, the enduring power and population popularity of Prime Minister Modi. I mean, I was there in election day in Gujarat in 2014, uh, when when he was elected, um, but I suppose I had assumed that the natural gravity of politics in a, in a quite diverse and, and divided country would take hold, and he would struggle to uh, not necessarily struggle to win re-election, but that that the idea that he would win uh, uh, two enormous victories and then go on to what looks like a third, I think I would have um, I would have thought that was quite unlikely. So that maybe you know it's good to recognise what you didn't quite get right, and I think the the enduring underlying popularity of Modi and where that comes from is something that the book could have dealt with a little bit better. Let me stop there and uh, and then we'll open it up. Yeah, thank you, James, uh, for that beautiful and, and wonderful narration. Um, and I think one thing which I want the audience to pivot back again is, is back to the book again, whereby James uh, also says that why we should be interested in India. And then he writes, and I quote, uh, whatever happens, 
India is set to grow in an economic might and political power for the remainder of the 21st century, as America did in the during the 19th century. By some account, it has already overtaken China as the world's most populous nation. By others, the baton will pass during the decades or, or two. Today's India's 2.3 trillion economy is slightly smaller than Britain's. Bearing some unforeseen, it will surpass America in size by mid-century and then perhaps China too. So if, like I said in the beginning of the meeting, if you are in Asia, uh, India is something which you should be very familiar about. And this particular book, you know, it, it takes you through the streets of Mumbai, to the streets of um, Ahmedabad, to the streets of Bangalore, uh, to the streets of New Delhi, where the capital of India is. It really makes you understand that how India ticks, how India makes a sense out, out of all this chaos and how wealth generation still happens uh, and how it is prospering in, in this particular century. I have a notebook full of notes in terms of what I want to discuss. Like, for example, it's 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 not only a scandalous uh, story, right? It is a story whereby James was having these one-on-one -on -one conversations with these billionaires and how, uh, I think one of the quotes uh, from one of the richest uh, Indians in uh, well, the top one, he uh, mentioned that, you know, don't work for money. So, uh, you know, things which you can learn from them. And one of the uh, air air uh, aircraft tycoon mentioned that you know you and he gave his advice to his employees that you know you treat your uh, the passengers as his own guest um, one of the one of the things which goes through the stories is also how Vishwanathan Anand, who is a chess prodigy, when he was importing a computer, it took it took months and months just to import one computer, and it will it it will come at a threefold price. Um, it it tells about like I mentioned earlier the 91 crisis whereby India really had to sell gold. And if you are interested in this topic more, you should also read this one more uh, book by uh, Gurucharan Das. If I'm not wrong, the book is called India Unbound, which also talks about the progress of India through 1991. So one of the important pivotal points in Indian history is definitely 1947. And then the other, I, in, in my opinion, the other most important point in Indian um, financial uh, history is the economic reforms of 1991, whereby India just shed off the colonial past in terms of their mindset, and then just, they just opened their economy for the world. And basically saying that you know India is open for business. Now we are also going to talk a lot about what, um, like James mentioned, that you know what democracy means to different parts of the economy, how the corruption cycle has its phases, and 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 equally so for uh, lot so many uh, nations around the world. And we will also discuss how economists and philosophers have have their views about. Uh, democracy and what it means for different nations. But first, I really want to ask you this question, uh, James. Um, I think I'm I'm speaking in behalf of all the all the audience and the book club members here today. That how come the idea of billionaire Raj was formed, and how did you go about researching a, uh, it? I mean, India is a fantastically big country. Where did you start, and how the idea came, and how was your experience around that? Well, the, the original title of the book, when I, I looked at the proposal, was it was just it wasn't called the Billionaire Raj. It was called the Journey Through India's Gilded Age or India's New Gilded Age. The Billionaire Raj came later. Um, publishers care a lot about titles, and so there were all sorts of different titles that we we thought about until we um, alighted on this one. They were pretty keen on the idea of getting billionaire in there because it kind of summed up what the book was uh, was about. I mean, in terms of the research, it was a kind of mixed bag, right? I mean, I, I'd spent five years in India, so I had various sort of things that I had done as a journalist, sort of people I'd met, you know, stories tucked into my knapsack um, that I could go and ransack. But I knew that there were bits that, that were missing. So I moved to, we left India in 2016. So after five years and moved to Singapore, and I, I um, started the book process in, in Singapore and then um, uh, I wrote the book here, but I would sort of put, you know, go back to India on reporting trips. So for instance, there were, there's a couple of chapters in the middle, um, which are about uh, the north of India, sort of the, Hin the Hindi, Hindi belt, um, so Uttar Pradesh. I hadn't spent an awful lot of time there when I was researching. I spent, you know, I was a business journalist. I spent more time yeah. in Mumbai, um, Mumbai, Bangalore, Hyderabad, Chennai, you know, the places where there were um, Ahmedabad, where there were lots of foreign businesses. And I felt if you were going to write about India, you know, you really needed to go and spend some time in the in the kind of heartland. So I did a, yeah. a road journey through 
wow. you know, going from Delhi to Lucknow to Varanasi and sort of all the way through UP to just just try and make sure that I'd I'd sort of seen that side of the country. So I mean, I, I never made it to every Indian state, but I, I made it to most of the big ones. So wow. So, yeah, so it was a fun fun research process. So. So, I mean, uh, you you rightly said, right? India is 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 contrastingly big from the towering uh, Mumbai to the streets of Varanasi, which is is within ancient ancient city, um, and Hindi Belt. Uh, for the audience members who, who who are new to the to the Indian landscape, it is basically one of the biggest uh, constitutional uh, states in India. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's one of the states in India, Uttar Pradesh, which from where most of the representations uh, in the Indian uh, houses come from. So whenever elections are happening, people are mostly glued on what's happening on the on the Hindi Belt, especially in the Uttar Pradesh. Um, so uh, for the members who are joining us for the first time, uh, what we are doing now is having a bilateral conversation with James. You will, uh, whereby I have a set of questions where I will be asking James and um, you will also be getting a chance to ask and directly interact with James on, uh, you know, um, on your opinion on the book or India in general and ask about his experiences. So you will get a chance. So keep on thinking of what you want to engage James on and you will, um, I think in the next 10 minutes, get a chance to do so. Um, Coming back to James, uh, James, uh, the book um, whereby you explore this, this this tension between democracy and capitalism. Um, how has this tension developed uh, over time, and what challenges do they present for the country's future? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, so I started off writing a book about business, right? So I yeah. was interested in the the big house of. Mukesh Ambani, which I had to drive past every day, um, Antilia, the billion dollar yeah. hub, and BJ Malia and his golden toilet and uh, some of the other things that, that turn up in the book. But, you know, sort of fundamentally, if you're trying to talk about crony capitalism, crony capitalism means the, the deals that are done between the business and political elite. And so you then have to delve into Indian democracy. Um, uh, Indian democracy is, is a, you know, it's a unique beast um, it's different from the United States or Indonesia or um, all of the other democracies that you might you might look at. And so I suppose yeah. I tried to understand, as others have done, um, why it is that, you know, corruption exists, for instance, you know, why why it is that there are so many why voters don't seem to be too bothered by politicians who are corrupt or often they 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 aren't that bothered by that so I, I, I you know how the political funding system worked I mentioned that before that I always thought was really interesting I never you know all all politicians in India almost by definition have to be corrupt because in order to raise money it's very difficult to raise money legally so even if you're you know kind of scrupulously honest in other ways you still have to rely on underhand um, political party donations in order to run your campaigns and run your district as a member of parliament. So there, there was a kind of you know natural relationship between trying to understand the dynamics of business and the way in which India's democracy worked. Yeah, thank you for that uh, narration, James. And uh, let's develop on this topic while we are here. Uh, and what you mentioned in your uh, chapter six, also whereby you quote an American Polish um, uh, economist, I think Adam, whereby he he mentions that democracy survives if democracy survives for long if the per capita income is more than six thousand fifty-five dollars right and india has been below that particular level for a very very long time what are your thoughts on that yes yeah, so it was interesting you picked up on this i hadn't thought about this for a long time so this is a very famous finding in uh, political science um adam pozorski who's a, a i think a polish economist at i can't remember where he is probably harvard but i've forgotten now um anyway so he he, he sort of he was famous data cruncher and he sort of looked at the um, the, the, the GDP per capita of democracies and autocracies. And he discovered what appeared to be a kind of an iron law, which is that if a country um, sort of became a democracy at above this magic level, $6,000, then, then it almost always stayed there. Um, and if it became a democracy below that level, then it almost always reverted um, into becoming some form of kind of dictatorship or autocracy. So if you take the case of Pakistan, which you know presently is kind of roughly a democracy, but over the course of its history, um, it has gone back and forth. It's had the, the, these kind of um, returns to 
um, autocracy. Um, and, and you look around the poorer countries of the world and still the majority of them are, are constitutional monarchies or autocracies or dictatorships or sort of something that is short of a pure democracy. So the, the main point is that India is just very unusual. Um, uh, it, it became a democracy when it was very, very poor and it remains, you know, much it remains far below um, that that level side so GDP per capita, I guess, is now something like two and a half thousand dollars. I haven't looked for a while, so I'm not sure. Um, and, and so the kind of question was, well, why is it that India um, has managed to do that? And part of the answer, um, Ashutosh Varshini is a um, political scientist at Brown and did a very good book on this, is that, you know, India's diversity is the thing that keeps its democracy together um, wow. because it's such a diverse country that it's not possible for one group to dominate. Now, I think the Modi government may be testing this at the moment, given the, the dominance of the, the BJP. Um, nonetheless, that, that's at least one theory as to why um, India's democracy has managed to sustain um, at a level of income in which many other countries have found uh, a democratic system more difficult to sustain. Yeah, no, I think that that's fantastic. And it gives uh, academicians uh, a lot of ground to research and what democracy means and what democracy means in the modern world uh, with, with such a big diversity and um, a big population, uh, basically, like they say, the biggest dance of democracy uh, when the elections happen. So now I think, uh, James, we move on to a section which I... Uh, um, which I we also get to know you personally a little bit more and after this particular session I will open up the floor for members to ask you directly questions so at this point in time uh, you know I request the members to start thinking about their questions or, or tidbits whereby they would like to engage James one-on-one uh, -on -one, right uh, and ask your questions uh, anything from Indian economy to, to what's happening in, in Asia in general because he has been um, in Asia for a very very long time I think in Singapore as well as in India so he has a very good understanding of, of the particular geographic especially in a world right now whereby we are moving away from a bipolar uh, world to a more I don't know a multipolar dimensional world and when geopolitical risk is at all times high so I think uh, this is a fantastic time to, to have James with us but let's move into the rapid fire uh, round. Uh, so are you ready, James? Go ahead. Shoot. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. I like the enthusiasm. So which is your favorite app on your phone? Uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> I guess so. Okay. Which is the one quality you appreciate most in people? Generosity. Wow. Your favorite book and why? Uh... I'm going to go with the Cicero trilogy by Robert Harris. They're intelligent kind of intelligent thrillers about ancient Rome, um, and I like them very much. I also uh, would say the, the the sort of John le Carre. Um, these are these are favorites. So. Fantastic. One advice which you would give to James in college? Cut your hair. <laughs> I would like to see that picture. Um, which is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Pistachio. Nice. Favorite binge worthy show on Netflix? Uh, it's not a Netflix show, but the one that I've really loved recently is called The Bureau. It's a, it's a, a French show about the, the French um, spying agency, the equivalent of RAW in India, the DGSO. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic show. So if you can get it, so in French, it's called The Bureau de Légende. It's um, kind of wonderful, wonderful, thrilling uh, stuff. Fantastic. I'll, I'll look it up. Which was the most challenging aspect of writing a book? Oh, it's all challenging. The whole thing is miserable. Um, <laughs> uh, getting started is the most difficult bit. It gets easier as you get towards the end. But yeah, the beginning where you don't have your thoughts in a row and um, you're just trying to kind of sort of begin to make progress, really difficult. So yeah, getting started is the most difficult thing. I think on that note, I will really congratulate you because I think the book has been fantastically read and it's coming from me because I, I go through a lot of books. Um, Asia, Europe or America in the 21st century? I got to say Asia. Fantastic. Your favorite leisure activity? Uh, ooh, um, cat stroking. 
Fantastic. Now the last question and after this um, I open up the, the floor for audience to directly ask you question and interact with you. So audience, please start thinking about your question. Uh, so last question over to you um, in the rapid fire, James. If you become the CFO of the billionaire Rajas, you know, in, in this, what would you advise them? Uh, that's an interesting question. I wondered when you sent me this. Um, I mean, you know, get out while you still can, I suppose, would be my <laughs> advice. Uh, the, the, these, these, the, the CFOs of the, the corrupt companies tend to be the ones who have to keep the two sets of books, um, you know, the real book and the public book. And, and so I suppose, you know, the, the smart ones, I think, were the ones who realized that eventually this kind of comes crashing down. And so, you know, you know get out, get out, get out early while you can. Great. Uh, so I think with that, I come to an end of the rapid fire round and my first section whereby I was asking you three questions and as well as the rapid fire um, at this point in time, I, I and you did fantastically well, um, James, on the rapid fire and all the questions so far. And at this point in time, I really open up the floor for the audience to directly interact with you. So in the audience, if we have participants who have a question or would like to ask anything to James, this is your chance. Don't be shy. Come on, Vic. Here you, you can ask a question. <laughs> I don't know. Here's some. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was going to say that when we meet, but sure. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned a little bit about your difficulty, you know, in investigating the gold. So other than that, do you have any interesting story to tell? I mean, about what was difficult to find out. Um, I mean. I'll give you one example. I mean, I, I, as I said, I was really um, fascinated by the question of how uh, politicians uh, raised money um, because uh, it was, you know, there was a deep secret. It was the kind of thing that nobody would ever tell you. And so the, I, I, I befriended various politicians and, you know, over time I would try and ask them, you know, if they give me some insights into how this happened and a few of them did. I mean, it, it was um, took a long time. I and mean, one of the things you learn as a journalist is that sort of people have to trust you a little bit, um, or at least they have to like you in order to tell you what's really going on. And so I never really got anybody to kind of actually tell me how they themselves did it. But at least in a few cases, they would tell me in the abstract how people did this. You know, so um, some MPs would simply outsource their entire fundraising to somebody and then not ask any questions as in you know they they'd find a sugar daddy um who would kind of do all the do all the money side and and you know they they would just be able to ignore it other people would have to set up innocent money raising organizations in which they'd um they'd have this whole kind of institution below them which um was tasked with kind of finding money in the community somehow you know raising money from businesses and the reason why this mattered was that in India, I don't know if it's probably not the same in Vietnam because of a very different political system, um, but but in in a lot of particularly rural India, your your the politicians are the state or they're an important element of the state. So if you have a problem, you uh, you go to your MP and they you know they provide a solution. They can give you money. They can sort of get the bureaucracy to do something. So they're like little social welfare organizations. But in order to do that, you need to raise money. Um, you need to raise money in order to pay bribes at election time uh, because people sort of ex ex expect bribes to come to rallies and, and also to go and vote. And, and so you need a lot of money. Um, and that, that was partly why there's been a big trend in India for um, kind of rich people and to some degree criminals, um, by which I mean you know people who have criminal records but are also wealthy. Um, becoming parliamentarians over over the last two decades. So yeah, that that was one example of something that was very hard to get at. Um, that you know o often you're you're trying to get people to tell you secrets, and um, you know you just have to keep being persistent and keep asking people, and then piece together piece together bits and bobs. Um, something like the the story about the gold. It was funny. I did it partly through interviews, but also partly just piecing together things in public documents. You know, I knew the story that I wanted to tell. It was just literally a case of sort of, you know, did it happen in the nighttime or the daytime? You know, what was what what kind of truck did you need to have? Where was the truck going? The truck was going to the airport, but which airport? Yeah. Was it the airport that you have at the moment or the airport that they had, you know, 20 years ago? And so just being able to write that down, that short paragraph required a lot of 
Correct. reporting to try and work out you know what actually happened and so the, the whole book is like that you know you the you 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 need to go and you need to go talk to people and and do your fact checking and, and that sort of thing yeah thank you james uh, for that question i think we have one more question from arjun so arjun you can un unmute yourself and ask awesome uh, thank you am i audible yeah perfect yeah thanks james this was really fascinating I'm curious about what you found about India's wealthy class in terms of their openness to Indian luxury products. Do you think they're basically suckers for anything European or foreign, or did you get a sense that they might want to buy high-quality Indian products if they had the chance, like if these were available? I'm curious if you have any stories or anecdotes that come to mind. That's an interesting question. I mean, I suppose I was quite interested. I I don't remember anything like that. I mean, I I. I um, there weren't very many high-end Indian luxury products that I could think of, but I suppose I, I was very interested in the, the kind of the idea of conspicuous consumption and why it was that that was sort of so important. So if you look at something like Mukesh Ambani's house, you know, like why was it important for him to build such a prominent residence? Um, you know, unique. For those of you who don't know, on the cover of the book, I can sort of show it here. You have a picture of Antilia, which is this remarkable skyscraper in downtown Mumbai, which I would drive past most days. Never got inside it. Um, you know, spoke to plenty of people who had been. Um, they were never quite unwise enough. Um, you know, why was it that they felt the need to build something quite so conspicuous? And you know, partly it was functional. You know, if you're that rich, when you see Mukesh Ambani walk into a room in India, it's like you know the American president or the King of England or something. I mean, he he's a sort of a monarch, um, and so it is quite difficult for him to move around in public um, in any meaningful sense. And so basically, um, what they created was the equivalent of a 18th-century palace in which everything that you needed was inside this one gigantic building but in mumbai the only way that you could do that was by building up so you know you had you know many different uh, residences for family members you had all sorts of ballrooms you could host weddings you could host um, community events but still it was you know the, it was a display of power and i suppose it, it was interesting it was only there's another book that i'd recommend everybody read which is a book called um uh, by, by Desmond Shum about uh, a sort of Chinese crony capitalism. And it was only after reading that that I really sort of think I understood how important it was that, um, you know, displays of conspicuous wealth were a symbol of credibility in business terms, as in it was quite difficult to um, uh, signal to a counterparty, be that a politician or another business person, that you were a, a kind of serious operator. But one way in which you could do this was by by demonstrating conspicuous consumption. And so, you know, if you were willing to fly, um, you know, 500 people to Switzerland for a wedding or take everyone to drink a thousand dollar a bottle wine, then, you know, you had to have that money. Right. I mean, it was a just it was a sort of a, a display of the fact that you were actually as wealthy as you claimed to be. Um, and so that was quite useful in business terms. I think to you know some people it might seem that it was vulgar um, somehow or showy or and sure there was an element of that. But I suppose I, I came to try and understand that that this kind of um, the 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 the, 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 the luxury consumer goods had a function as well. It wasn't just some kind of cultural affect of the the nouveau riche which the the, the old money looked down on. I mean it was a way of signaling who you were and what you were able to achieve um, to people that you might want to do business with. Ross, back to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, any other question from the audience? You're all very quiet. I sort of I see a nice, interesting range of names out there. So uh, yeah. in different places. <laughs> but, uh... Uh, hi, James. Uh, just one question. Did you ever have a chance to meet Mr. Tata and how is he different from the billionaires that you were talking about? Great question. Somebody always asks me this and lying behind Nidhi's question is the, the, the question that I got asked. The two questions that I got asked most often, well, there were three. 
one of which was why are there no women in this book which i have to say is true that unfortunately india's tycoon class is very male dominated uh, the second one was what about philanthropy as in you know did you look at that which i have to say i didn't um at, at great length and then the the third one was why didn't you profile any of the good guys why did you only profile the bad guys and the reason for that was that the bad guys were much more interesting i mean i remember my mom when i was little saying that you know when when she was a kid um you know the two biggest rock bands in the world were the beatles and the rolling stones and you could only really be into one of them and the rolling stones were much more interesting because they were kind of the bad boys and i was interested in the bad boys of indian capitalism i mean they just seemed much more uh, interesting characters that said yes i mean in answer to your question i did meet um uh, ratan tata a number of times i profiled him for the ft i went into bombay house the headquarters of tata um on a number of occasions i mean it's an enormously important indian company um it's just that you know he himself was a very um you know he's an interesting character study but you know he's no he's no vijay malia um in terms of kind of talking about the the darker side of of indian capitalism so i i felt like it was one of the more positive things about india's growth story that you did have these these other business leaders so the the tech tycoons were the most obvious ones the nanda nilakanis and people like that but also ratan tata and mahindras and piramels and various others who ran businesses which had a better reputation for governance and, and cut fewer corners and um and and so there was this other side to the indian growth story as well it was there was much more positive thanks james thank you uh, james i think uh, nidhi you had a question yeah hello hi that was, uh, uh, oh hi yeah go ahead hi yeah so i wanted to ask you what actually motivated you to pick this topic there are so many uh, countries in the world and i mean you chose this topic so i just wanted to know this the motivation behind choosing it it's a good question um i mean i suppose i felt that you know i often used to joke that i was going to go and do something that was uh, you know it's hardly unique for a white british journalist to write a book about india because <laughs> there you know hundreds there hundreds of these things right and and so um i didn't really feel that anybody needed another book about kind of you know india after gandhi where you talked about gandhi and mrs gandhi and the you know rahul gandhi and uh, you know there's sort of the 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 political dynasty somehow but there hadn't been a good book about indian business or not one that i was aware of and so i suppose i felt that it, i i felt that this was really interesting i mean it was the thing that that um you know there were many things that i wrote when i was a journalist that i wasn't particularly you know sort of here today gone tomorrow i wrote an awful lot of stories about infosys's third quarter results that no one in their right mind would ever read again um but this was a topic that i found that i tell people about you know sort of the thing that was really really interesting and i felt that i'd you know i i'd got some quite good access um partly because i was working for the financial times which is a you know well-known newspaper and and so that meant that um you know you could go and talk to people i mean one of the nice things about india is you know it's quite it's still um you know whatever you think about the direction of the government it's still a reasonably open society so particularly if you compare it to china both the political class and the business class are reasonably accessible people will talk to you you know if you make an effort to go round to their offices then then you know the i i met pretty much everyone i mean mukesh ambani is quite difficult to get to modi himself is difficult to get to but you know below that level um if you're persistent and you try hard and you're lucky enough to have a a kind of global brand behind you like the ft i i'd met a lot of these people and so i felt like i had good material maybe material that other people might might not have had um so yeah that was the kind of combination i mean i just thought it, i thought it was really interesting and i felt that i had a kind of i had a story to tell which was which hadn't been well told before um and and so that that was sort of what took me down the path yeah and at this this point in time i will just quickly place in an ad that uh, even though this book is about like i said in the beginning of the the meeting right it is about wealth ambition and power uh, but like uh, james rightly pointed out that you know he was working for financial times at this point in time so uh, um, this book also looks and is very important for someone who is investing in india or is looking to invest in india because this uh, you know 
certain nations in the world in going forward would be providing a lot of investing opportunities and by any uh, standard this is not an investing advice uh, but you know you, if you are if you are willing to then you can start um, reading about this particular book so billionaire raj by james crabtree and i think with that we will go to shantanu for your question hi thanks james um, you know you've obviously profiling some very powerful people so during the course did you face any pushback from various stakeholders while researching and then you know publishing the book yeah also a good question um not too much i mean so i was sued by anil ambani the younger and bastard much less successful of the ambani brothers so he sued me for 100 million dollars but not for the book this was for an article that i wrote subsequently um you know there was absolutely nothing wrong with the article but it was you know purely intimidatory he didn't like me very much because i had written a few pieces saying that he wasn't very good at running his businesses which the performance of his businesses amply bore out um i mean in terms of the the book itself it was very very carefully lawyered i mean one of the the most uh, sort of nerve-wracking pro parts of writing a book like this is that you you have in my case three different sets of lawyers so i had an american edition a british edition and an indian edition they all had three different lawyers sort of combing over it and so basically you're you're okay if somebody's dead um uh you can say what you like because you you know the the, the sort of the phrase is you can't libel the dead so you know in a sense i could say what i wanted about durabai ambani for instance but actually in india doesn't work like that as in um in the united kingdom if you tried to bring a legal case um on spurious grounds um you know there are all sorts of problems with the uk legal system but spurious cases get kind of knocked out but in india that's not what happens you um you know the, the it's not very expensive for the the tycoons to use the legal system just to create a nuisance um and as i have been a recipient of one of these cases i can tell you it is a very great nuisance i sort of left six months of my life kind of talking to lawyers and having to rebut legal accusations um so yeah so there the, there was we were pretty careful about it um and to be fair the book you know i mean it has a lot of original reporting on it but it's not a book of investigative journalism so it's not like i was um doing what the financial times has recently been doing with its series of stories on adani if you read the book uh, you know it's a sort of i hope an elegant and <clears throat> well written account of some of these figures but it wasn't as if i was making wild accusations about you know the fact that they had done this thing that was illegal or broken that regulation um so also i think the fact that uh, that kind of material wasn't in it meant that um, meant there was less likelihood of getting sued but it was very very carefully lawyered there were various things that i had to take out the prologue um which um uh, for those of you who might read the book the prologue is one of the things that people remember because it tells a story about uh what is often thought i'm going to choose my words carefully here but what is often thought to have been a family member of the ambani family that was involved in a car crash in uh, in mumbai and the wording on that one was very very carefully um gone over because it was kind of um you know you 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 have to be very careful what you're what you're saying in the uh in in the book so for us over to you thank you james for that uh, arjun do you have a question i think i see your uh, hand raised if not i'll I think go. you may have already asked his yeah might be okay maybe in that case i'll go uh, i think uh, we may have time for one or two last questions uh, i'll go i'll go with one and maybe then if anyone else also wants to ask one they can raise hand so this phenomena of billionaire raj uh, james it's something which is not very unique to india like um, we were discussing in the beginning of the meeting also and but how does it compare to similar trends in other countries and what makes the india experience very distinctive um so i mean as i said before that i i always tried to make this point when i was talking about the book which is that what has happened in india is um is not historically unusual um you know if you look at um, malaysia under mahathir uh or dickensian london or the one i talk about most the american gilded age um they have many similar aspects uh to what's happening in india today and and so there's um you know there's a sort of interesting question that i talk about in the book about the extent to which corruption is useful um you know why why is it that corruption is so um prevalent in 
these countries that are going through these early stages of rapid industrialization and um, the you know the movement of, of people from villages into towns, um, you know, and to some extent it is that corruption is quite useful. It it helps um, help deals get done. It can kind of grease the wheels of capitalism. And so I spent a few pages in the book talking about the, the literature about the in a sense the pros and cons of corruption, not the view that corruption is always bad, but trying to understand why uh, why it matters. And I suppose in each system, you know, the the reasons for this are are different. India has a particular political economy. Um, that's that's unique. Um, it's a very big country, and so uh, you know I tried to to sort of capture that while also reminding people that lots of other countries had been here before, and lots of other countries had you know moved into a stage of government that was you know a little bit um, you know sort of more uh, um, you know had fewer of these problems that people think are, are kind of a feature, not a bug of the Indian system. So. Yeah, thank you really, uh, James, for that very comprehensive uh, answer. At this point in time, we are leaning <coughs> towards the end of the session. Uh, any any last questions which the members would like to ask James? I think this is your last chance. If not, then I will say thank you very much for taking the time. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk about this again. It's very nice of you to invited me for us. I, you know, obviously when you when you launch a book, you you uh, uh, you know you talk about it a lot for the first six months, and then it sort of gently recedes into the background. But it was quite fun just to uh, revisit uh, revisit this again. So um, I feel like it's uh, it remain these questions remain relevant. So so appreciate yes. you having me on, and good good luck with the rest of the the, the series. So. Yeah, thank you so much, James. And and the, I would like to wrap the session with your with your line, which you wrote at the end of the session, which is India's ambition to lead the second half of the Asian century and the world's hope for a more democ uh, democratic, liberal future depends on getting this transaction right. Um, so with that, uh, you know how important India's political future, economical future is for Asia as well as for the world. So if you are someone who is interested, like I said earlier, in India, knowing more about India or uh, financially want to in invest or would like to know uh, out of curiosity more about India, uh, The Billionaire Raj by James Crabtree is the book to go. Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, as, as they say in India, it's a chaotic country, but a chaotic country which makes sense and it works uh, functionally well. So if you would like to understand a, a bit more of that chaos, how the power, wealth and ambition works in, in, the, in the country where 1.3 billion people live, this is the book to be and James Crabtree is, is the man to be. So with that, we wrap up this particular session of the Words Book Club. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Thank you, James, and have a good night, everyone.